Rusty Quill presents. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. Previously on Scars in Time. Pressed for time because of her new practice, Darcy tasks Ash with meeting the movers and buying supplies for their new house. Ash, wanting to prove she's not a burden, treks into Gun Cotton and meets a few locals, including Lele, the checkout girl at Ellison's, the town department store. While helping direct the movers around her house, Ash ventures into the tiny fifth-floor garret and makes a startling discovery. A typewriter. The serendipity of the experience is soon ruined, however, by the appearance of a figure from her past. A demon of sorts she knew only as the Umbrella Man. Without further ado, Scars in Time, Chapter 8. The Lantern. stayed in the darkness for a long moment. Forever, really. Waiting for those thin slivers of steel to slide into my arms, my throat. To drag me out of the garret and into the sky. For a moment, the vision of that impending death. Gray sky, the valley spread out beneath me, the first lurch of falling, falling, falling. Was more powerful than the dread of seeing him again. Him outside of dream and memory. Him. Just inches from me. Closer than he'd gotten even in my youth. The Umbrella Man. For all my dark expectations, nothing happened. The pulse in my ears, that roaring, almost deafening soundtrack to fear, faded. The image of him floating outside my garret still superimposed itself over the lightless angles of what my eyes had managed to adjust themselves to see faint corners of the hidden closet, the sides of the windows. I swallowed and slid my feet forward, feeling the slight give of fabric and then kicking upward. The brown umbrella came loose of the trapdoor and dusty lights spilled upward, barely illuminating anything, but letting me see just enough to scramble down the ladder toward the flashlight. I snatched up the metal tube and, overcome by a deep, fear-soaked fatigue, fell back against the wall. The boards protested, held, and pulled at my clothing as I slid to the floor. Then I could feel myself crying, even if I couldn't hear it. The shake of shoulders and salty tears. Then I was fine. If someone hollowed out, standing and rubbing my face and touching my hair as though there was any fixing it in the first place, I gave the garret one last look and then brushed myself off and walked downstairs. I needed to. I don't know. Be around people. 
Maybe more so I needed to be around anybody who wasn't as unwell as I was to gauge my sanity against someone healthy. I found the downstairs much less crowded than when I'd gone upstairs. Only five or so movers remained. Dawes stood amongst the throng of them, talking and pointing around the place and chuckling about this or that. He noticed me and smiled, not quite happily, putting his hand on his hip. Hey there, Mrs. Littletree, he said. The men behind him looked up at me and then milled around until they were all standing sort of behind Dawes. The arrangement was almost militaristic, I thought, but hardly menacing. They seemed more like well-behaved little boys playing a game, to be honest. Hey, Dawes, I said. He was so much older than me that the honorific seemed odd and almost embarrassing. He pointed to the pile of boxes in the corner. You mind showing us where the rest of this stuff might go? He asked. There seemed to be more things than I could honestly remember packing. I would have just shrugged and said, anywhere, there's fine, preferring instead to have all the men gone and the house to myself. Damn, the extra work of privacy was the sacrifice. But right then I was feeling extra vulnerable and a little light, the electric waterfall buzzing in my ears just enough that I felt unsafe being alone. Sure, I said. I spent the next couple hours directing the men here and there around the house. It was surprising, at first, having all those large young men popping here and there at my slightest order and all of them with a quick and easy yes ma'am on their lips. But, oddly enough, it wasn't terribly uncomfortable for either them or me, I felt. Perhaps it was the size of the house that facilitated all this easy sending and fetching that was so unlike me it almost felt alien. I certainly would never have so comfortably ordered around working men like them at any other time in my life. Maybe it was still simply the trauma of the last few days. The vision in the garret and the ugly familiarities of the house had simply given me reason to let my true self submerge and this other person take over. By the end of their working day, I had even bartered some quick cleaning services from Dawes, tossing each man $50 to dust, sweep, and mop two rooms apiece. Going to be hard with that carpet in the middle there, Dawes said, again pointing to the massive ruined rug in the middle of the central hall. I looked it over from beside the front door. I shrugged. Go ahead and get rid of it then, I said looking out the front door while his men rolled up the carpet and brought in a bucket of hot water from the kitchen. My heart caught in my chest a bit when I saw the intricate tile work the carpet had hidden. I'd gotten a peek before, but viewing the thing in its entirety was breathtaking. It was a symbol that seemed to be made of other, smaller symbols. A great joining of things that made my mind flit from one part of the image to the other. I felt the tugging strands of air moving into the room surrounding me, but not quite getting close enough this time to bind. It was as though something was holding them at bay, or holding them in hand, at least I didn't know. Are you okay? Dawes asked for maybe the eighth time that day. I smiled and nodded my head, watching two of his guys mopping black sludge off the tiles with grimaces on their faces. The rug was already out the door. Fine, I said. This is just another long day, and a long line of long days. I gave him a more honest smile and stretched out my hand. He returned the handshake with a nod of his head. You really helped out a lot here. I thought you guys were going to leave a while ago after I signed for our stuff. He shrugged. My job didn't feel finished, he said. Besides, the guys are really interested in the house and wanted the chance to look around. He crossed his arms and looked up at the second floor. Can't say I wasn't interested myself as well. Well, you were a big help, I said. They really had been. The house looked only about half as haunted with all the dust and cobwebs gone. The unsteady yellow light from the ancient fixtures still flickered, and the place still seemed dark and... 
warped, somehow. But the little bit of cleaning had done a great deal to make it seem more like a home than an old house. And we did what we could, he said. In fact, he pulled a bent-up business card out of the back pocket of his jeans and handed it to me. I looked it over, reading the business's name aloud. Gordon and Greek Remodeling, Blunt, West Virginia, I said, looking up at him. Friends of yours? Business-type friends, yeah, Dawes said with a grin. They do good work, and you're, uh, you're gonna need some good work done on this place. The electrical grid in here is older than me, and that's saying something. Knob and tube, it's called, and you want to get that pulled and replaced ASAP. He shrugged. There's probably a lot else they'd want to do with a place this old. But I figured you might have expected that. I had, but I hadn't really known what to do about it. It was one of those things I'd have passed on to Darcy, figuring she'd rather handle it and handle it well then risk me fucking it all up because I had an episode or got overwhelmed. Then I thought about her being stressed out by the new job and all we'd been through, and the feeling of competence I'd gotten walking around my new home and ordering all those oversized men around. I took the card. I'll give him a call, I said, putting the card in my pocket. If you end up hiring him, you might be seeing a bit more of me, Dawes said with a grin. I truck for them when they work up here. Moving pipe and wood and wire and all that. That's why you carry that business card around then, huh? I asked. Yes, ma'am, he said, smiling. Hey, boss, one of the workers asked. I didn't recognize the young man. Yes, Jose, Dawes said, turning to the man. The guy pointed at the tiles by his feet. There's something won't come up. Jose said. I had to guess. Somebody burned something here. At least it looks like burn marks. Dawes walked closer and looked where Jose was pointing. He nodded. Yep, I'd say that's about right. He said, looking to me. Not much we can do about that, I'm afraid. You'd have to pressure wash that up or try polishing it out, I think. It's no big deal, I said. You've all done enough anyways. I joined them on the tiles, tracing the light brown-black etching with my foot. It wasn't something you could really notice if you weren't looking directly at it. If Jose hadn't pointed it out, in fact, I might never have known it was there. Then, at least. Well, then I guess that is that, Dawes said. The others were already pouring out the mop bucket and even taking out the couple bags of garbage that had accrued from cleaning. Then they were all gone, save Dawes, and I could hear a car starting up and driving out of the roundabout. He pointed at me from the hip, like a cowboy drawing a gun. Uh, one last thing, he said. I'd say you're running on borrowed time with these lights. He pointed at the yellowed fixtures which were, even now, flickering and dimming and dancing in places like wind-whipped flames. I'd run out to Ellison's and grab yourself a lantern for when they eventually die. And, I mean, you're living in West Virginia now anyway, so expect a few power outages. Oh, I know, I said. He raised an eye. I'm, I'm actually from here. Gun cotton? He asked. No, I said, laughing. Charleston, but uh, I, I know what you mean. I grew up in a pretty nice part of town, and we'd still lose power here and there. Floods and storms. I shrugged. He laughed. Then you know to get one of the gas lanterns, right? Them AA D battery rechargeable fuckers aren't worth their weight in shit. I nodded, not wanting to seem dumb, even though I actually didn't know exactly what he was talking about. Gas lanterns made me think of the old, fluted glass ones I'd only ever seen in movies. The kind that got too hot to touch and turned black around the upper lip of the glass. Well then, here's to seeing you around, Dawes said. He shook my hand one last time and then I was alone with my clean floors and flickering lights. I waited by the door until I heard Dawes' truck pull out of the roundabout and then looked around, waiting for something to turn over or start.
start ticking. Waiting, I guess, for that draw toward the fifth floor garret to come over me again. Nothing happened, save that my stomach started rumbling. I endeavored to make myself an egg sandwich using our fancy new stove. The pots and pans for our old place, nice ones we'd gotten from Williams Sonoma for probably more than they were worth, actually looked good hanging above the big wooden prep table in the center of the kitchen. I completed the egg sandwich without much difficulty, and the thing tasted better than any egg sandwich I'd ever eaten in my fucking life. Miss Pat's blue speckle selection were fresh eggs, which I didn't even know was a thing until the exact second I ate one. The local cheese was amazing too, dense and rich and mouth-watering. I ended up making a second one, humming to myself while I worked because I literally didn't have anything around to make music for me. I felt good, for the first time in a while, eating my somehow fancier-than-expected West Virginia egg and cheese sandwich and humming an inappropriately hardcore blood dog song to myself while I cooked. I felt real again, grounded. Not up in the clouds, but actually here, in the flesh, alive and living. The lights in the central hallway sputtered, dimmed, and died. I just watched it happen, not bothering to let myself get nervous. The day had been approaching sundown as Dawes left the roundabout, and now that part of the house was utterly dark. I searched for the usual ghosts and, finding none, decided to not care about things I couldn't change and focused on eating my sandwich. But eventually that ended, and I was left to either sit in the surprisingly still well-lit kitchen for the rest of my life, or do something about the dark hallway. It was also getting cold in the house, and I wondered if maybe the heat had gone out as well. I thought about that for a moment before realizing I had no idea how the heat in the place worked. It was another thing I'd left to Darcy and now didn't have a handle on. I'd been sitting on the prep table while I ate, but now I was finished and drumming my fingers on my knee. I took a breath, hopped down from the table and pulled the steel flashlight tube out of my jeans, thankful for the big pockets my ugly boy jeans afforded me. The light was bright up close, but the intensity fell off a great deal after just a few yards. The beam was more a dusting of white light as I shone it around the distant walls of the grand hall. There was a smell in the house, a nasty hot metal stink like overworked brakes on a car. It wasn't terrible, but it raised the hackles on the back of my neck. The worrisome feeling got all the worse the longer I spent in the dark, but eventually I made it out to our bedroom on the second floor, where the lights were thankfully still functional. I sat on the bed for a second and then, thinking of Darcy storming around our bedroom that morning, I steeled myself and got ready for a second trip to Ellison's. I was mostly still ready to go out, I realized heading downstairs as calmly as I could while still flicking the light around in the dark. The hot metal smell had gotten worse, and for some reason I could hear my dad's voice in my head telling me to turn off the lights that weren't even on. Not a sort of vision or anything, thankfully, just a good old-fashioned memory. I did just that, pushing the switches to go off in every room before leaving. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name is Tyler Bell and I'm the host of the West Side Fairy Tales. For better or worse, this operation is basically a one-man show. I do all the writing, reading, editing, music, and the various other production aspects. Yui Breedlove does all the wonderful episode art you see online. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider compensating us for the experience. Anything, even just a dollar, lets us know that you believe the West Side Fairy Tales is content you appreciate. You can donate to our efforts directly through the PayPal link on our website, westsidefairytales.com or by pledging to support us on Patreon. For just a dollar there, you'll get access to these episodes without ads like this, and for $5 or more, you get access to members-only content, including fully produced ebooks of the episodes and behind-the-story lore episodes. And, at $10 or more, we'll start sending you special merch packs and a whole lot of other stuff. The West Side Fairy Tales is a one-of-a-kind production. And we can't thank you enough for just taking the chance to give us a listen. But odd, off-the-wall, incredibly unique productions like this are self-funded. And, without the generous support of listeners like you, we wouldn't be able to stay on the air. So, please consider keeping great horror independent and supporting the West Side Fairy Tales today. Thank you, and, as always, stay safe out there. Now, back to our program already in progress. The old town fog was worse at sundown, but still navigable. High enough that I felt like I was wading through a swamp of some sort, but still low enough that my head and most of my chest remained above the steady white plain of mist. If I shined the flashlight directly down at my feet, I could see the ghosts of my shoes and my jeans, but otherwise I had to make my way along the route very, very carefully. Even the dozen or so gas street lamps along the boulevard did little to cut the fog. They were, at best, lighthouses that kept me from smashing my knee into the low-lying wrought-iron fence that bordered our property and all the side streets in Old Town. I found myself somewhat thankful for the irregular cobblestones that kept nearly tripping me up, given they might slow any approaching cars down enough to actually see me before hitting me. Then I was out of Old Town and the mist had mostly flattened out to an ankle-deep tide that surged like water with every step. I considered keeping my flashlight on, even when I was under the blue-white LED streetlights. They cut through the fog enough that I could see, though they were still merely islands in a river of darkness. Still, I didn't want to seem like a crazy person, so I tucked the light into my pocket. There were other people out that night, but they were just shadows, anonymous as the dead until they popped into the relative lightness inside the bing-bang-boom or Colby's at the end of the street. Only then were they revealed to be creatures of flesh, smiling and meeting people or searching for the rest of their party before sitting. Lele was still on shift at Ellison's, 
though she had some company now. I recognized Sean, the boy that had helped bring our stuff over the day before, and Calvin, the man who'd driven the truck for the kids. They looked at me when I came inside, but only Lele smiled and waved. The other two just nodded and resumed their low conversation beside the register. What you need there, Miss Ash? Lele asked. A, uh, lantern? I asked, shrugging and then remembering Dahl's urging to get one of the gas kind. A gas lantern. Then, unnecessarily adding, some of the lights are going out in our house. Okay, Lele said. She pointed toward the back of the store. Right back there on your left. I thanked her and followed her directions. There were only two lanterns to choose from, a small one and a large one. I took the smaller of the two and walked to the register. Lele started ringing me up and Sean and Calvin stopped talking. Sean sighed and held up a hand. No, wait, Lele, he said, disappearing into the back. She sucked her teeth and put a hand on her hip, watching him go and shaking her head. He returned a second later with the larger of the two types of lanterns and a boxy steel jug of fuel. I realized both were for me and I took a breath, feeling slightly embarrassed. Sean took the lantern I'd picked and slid it away from me. I don't even know why they sell those things, Sean said. He wasn't out of his teens, but he talked like an older man. His eyes were low and intense, but in a way I don't think he intended to come off as intimidating. The small ones last about half the time and burn out quicker. I'd feel bad if you walked away with that thing. Ah, uh, thanks, I said. I looked at Lele and she shook her head, but started ringing up the new items. Sean flicked the side of the fuel can and it made a deep, but tinny popping noise. You know how to set one of those up? He asked. I drummed my fingers on the counter and shrugged. No... Actually, I said. Is there a trick to it? Following the instructions, the kid said blankly. I couldn't tell if he was making fun of me or not. If you don't do it perfect, you can break the bags and you'll have to come all the way back here to get more. His eyes searched my face and he sighed. I'll help you. Don't worry about it. He grabbed the fuel can off the counter. I won't even charge you a carry fee. He smiled and I realized that was a joke. I chuckled, uncomfortably, and Lele rolled her eyes. You're being fucking weird again, Sean, she said. I'm not, he said, turning his eyes to her, then to Calvin. I'll be back tomorrow to finish talking. Calvin nodded to him and then to me. Then he left through a door behind the register. Bye, Lele, Sean said. Stop being fucking weird, Sean, Lele said before smiling at me. See you later, Miss Ash. Thanks for shopping at Ellison's. Is this podcast so good you almost want to skin it and wear its bloody hide in the streets as a testament to your undying love? Then go to our merch store today at westsidefairytales.com slash merch and buy yourself a t-shirt. All proceeds go to support the show and our episode artist, Yui Bree Love, gets a percentage of every sale. So, if you like the West Side Fairy Tales and want to support us and the amazingly talented woman who makes the art, head on over to westsidefairytales.com slash merch and purchase a mug, a hat, a sweatshirt, or a t-shirt. Head over to westsidefairytales.com slash merch today. Thank you, and, as always, stay safe out there. Now, back to our program already in progress. Sean walked me to my front porch in relative silence. The kid's vibe was too weird to invite personal questions, or even general small talk. That said, I was happy when he pulled out a flashlight of his own when we got to Old Town. 
The beam flicked around more than mine, constantly moving from this place to that as though the kid was actively looking for something. The non-stop searching made me nervous enough that I was glad when we got to my house and he hadn't found anything. The feeling didn't fade much after he, too, seemed to relax once out of the fog and sitting on the porch by me. Without saying anything, he pulled my lantern out of its green cardboard box and set to putting it together. I saw the bags he'd mentioned, two empty white pouches made of what looked like linen. He put those over the two gas spouts inside the body of the lantern and tightened them into place. Then he used the small white funnel included in the box to fill the fuel dome at the bottom of the lantern. It's going to catch on fire, he said, but don't worry about that. What? I asked, but he didn't bother answering. Instead, he turned the fuel dial on the side of the lantern to max and quickly twisted the little brass tab on the side of the thing. A tiny flint wheel sparked twice and the two bags burst into flame. Whoa! I yelled, stepping backward. He smiled up at me, the fire dancing in his eyes. Then he turned his attention back to the lantern. Within a few seconds, the fire dimmed and snuffed itself out. Almost immediately, the porch was filled with radiant white light. Sean adjusted the dial sum and then slid the glass shield into place, securing it with a little metal cap. Then he stood, holding the lantern out over the stairs leading down into my front yard. Light poured down onto the leaf-strewn grass, even cut into the mist laying thick over the cobblestones on the street outside, moved out of place by the sudden and powerful presence of the light thin limbs pushing aside the leaves for the safety of the deeper mists. Then Sean turned and handed the lantern to me, letting the thin ring of steel that served as the handle slip from his fingers into mine. I held the thing up to better inspect it, looking too hard and too long at the little iridescent bags and accidentally blinding myself for a second. When I lowered the lantern to my side... I could see the afterimage of every woven thread in those bags. Don't touch anything but the handle and the knobs when it's on or off, Sean said, pulling out his flashlight and shining it down toward the street. The effect was not the same as the intensity of the lantern. Everything on that thing gets hot as hell while it's running, but you won't be able to tell it's still hot when it's off until you've burned yourself keep that in mind if you bring it around anything flammable. Thanks, I said. It was all obvious advice that I didn't really need, but I didn't get the feeling that Sean was trying to be anything but helpful. No problem, he said, walking off down the stairs. Uh, wait, I said. Do I owe you anything? Are you, are you good to walk home by yourself? I don't know why I asked that second question but it's the only one of the two that stopped him mid-stride. Call this one a gimme, he said, turning around and holding his flashlight down by his feet to keep from blinding me. It's dangerous to go walking around Old Town without a good, bright light. He paused. Electric is good, but anything that burns is better. He looked at me for a second. Be safe, ma'am. You call us if you need anything, okay? I said I would, but he was already gone out the gate and moving steadily toward the end of the block and the big house, the orphanage where he and the other kids lived. I watched the beam of his flashlight bounce out of sight down the curving roads. Then I took up my lantern and walked inside. Hey there, Westsiders. Enjoying the program? Then hop on Twitter, Reddit, or your podcast app and let everybody know how great the Westside Fairy Tales is. Taking a few seconds to rate us, review us, or share our latest episode and your thoughts on it helps get fresh ears on our stories and lets us rise up from the dark and sweltering pits of the sub-top 100 rankings. 
I know you folks appreciate a good summoning, so why not bring this eldritch and unseen thing to the unwedding masses? Utter our black name before your friends, family, and co-workers, and then tag us so we can retweet or share it. We're at WS Fairy Tales on Twitter and Westside Fairy Tales on Facebook and Instagram. Click link tree in the episode description for a comprehensive list of our social media connections. You can also send us an email at westsidefairytales at gmail.com. If your inner circle of living people are too undeserving of the Westside Fairy Tales, you can join our little cult, the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club, on Facebook. We talk about the episodes, books we've been reading, horror news, and all sorts of stuff, so pop on by. Thanks again for listening to the West Side Fairy Tales, and don't forget to give us a review on your favorite podcasting app after this episode. Now, back to our program, already in progress. The house was dark, cold, and empty. It was only then that I realized I really didn't have any way to tell what time it was. I wouldn't have cared if it weren't for the simple realization that I didn't have any sort of distractions in the house, and no way to tell when Darcy might come back. I heard a snap above me, and looked up to see another of those light sprinklings of dust falling from the ceiling. It landed on the slight discoloration on the central hall's elaborate tile work. I stepped over to it, kicking the dust side to side in a crude attempt at cleaning the tiles. It gave me pause to look at the discoloration a second time. There was something vaguely familiar about the long, stretched-out shape of it. But the lines were too faded to make sense of the half-pattern rumbling around my brain. The hearth coughed then, a noise like a giant clearing its throat. I turned the lantern on the central fireplace. Two protrusions made up the base and mantle both of smooth, curving brickwork that looked enough like lips that the image of a mouth stuck well in my mind. A thin wisp of black smoke curled out of the thing's throat, coming up from the basement I hadn't tried visiting yet. The trickle grew to a wide ribbon that wavered out, perhaps a yard, into the central hall, before being sucked back up into the flue toward the second floor. I stepped back and looked upstairs, where I could see the same effect coming from the hearth there as well. The fuck? I asked the house. As if in response, there was a last, wet rasp, and the smoke stopped coming up from the basement. The last of the thick, black ribbon swept up out of sight through the second floor flew, and then it was done. I walked over to the hearth, holding my lantern out to see the elaborate stone pipework that let the thing breathe and heat multiple floors without choking the house with smoke. I couldn't make much sense of the chimney apparatus. There were simply holes going up and holes going down. All of it was caked with soot and cobwebs and dust. A thin, chill breeze cut out of the thing and through my too light clothing. I turned to go, but suddenly I could hear something in the guts of the hearth. It echoed up from down below. A cough, nasty and wet. The deep, lungy sort that makes your chest hurt to hear. It was bad enough that I cleared my own throat and covered my mouth. It stopped, and I waited a moment longer. Then it started up again. Though I could definitely tell it was more than one throat this time. A second set of lungs just as sick... Periodically hacking hard enough, it sounded like they were in danger of tearing up their insides. The sounds shifted, and I could tell these sick individuals were moving around in our basement, getting closer and farther away from the pipe I was listening to. It was the largest, in the center, though I couldn't imagine where it led. Maybe it was just a breathing hole down in the basement. I told myself that I was the sick one, even though I didn't quite believe it. There were no electric waterfalls, no threads of plying air, just the sounds in the basement and the odd feeling that the house wasn't empty. I shivered and stepped back from the hearth, looking around the house again. 
empty, dark, cold. I walked to the kitchen hallway to my right, where a somewhat hidden door in the wall opened onto the basement stairs. I knew it was there only because I'd heard the movers talking about it while I was directing the cleaning. None of them had suggested putting anything down there because of the very real chance of it being flooded or otherwise full of bugs or mold. The door was made of the square-paneled, finished wood that made up most of the downstairs walls. There was no knob or even a handle. It was kept shut with a sliding bolt with a flange that looped over a ring one could thread a lock through. The flange was heavy, pale iron speckled over with orange dots of rust. It lifted easily enough, though, and I slid the bolt aside. My lamp, bright as it was, illuminated only the stairs and a small gray patch of stone floor. I held the lantern higher and saw nothing but shadows. The stairs, I noticed, were the worst kind to have in a basement. Single slats of board on a frame with no backing. The kind you always expected to see a hand slip through as you went up or down them, grabbing your ankle and sending you tumbling. Or worse, if you are as slight as me, dragging you wholesale through the stairs and into the lake of shadow beneath. I shuddered stepping down to get a better look. The handrail for the stairs was a painted gray 2x6 bolted into place on 4x4s every three or so feet. You could send an elephant down that staircase and nothing would happen to it. I dropped my foot heavily on the top step to test that theory and listened to the almost soundless thump get swallowed by the dark. Something coughed at the base of the steps, that same wet sound. No, not at the base of the steps, but beneath them. I stepped back and slammed the heavy door. The sound seemed to continue echoing through the house as I flipped up the flange and slid home the bolt. I realized in a second that wasn't an echo in the house at all, but somebody beating impatiently on the front door. I glanced a second time at the bolt, ensuring it was safely home, and went to answer the knocking. The light from the lantern reflected so brightly off the glass that I couldn't see out the door. I waited to see if the banging would stop, but it didn't. My hand was shaking when I set it on the knob, and I might have stayed stuck that way forever if I hadn't heard Darcy's voice on the other side of the door. God damn it, Ash, open up! She called. Her voice was slightly muffled. I threw the door open and sighed with relief when I saw my wife. She did not sigh with relief when she saw me. In fact, she huffed with exasperation, slammed the door behind her, and walked straight to the kitchen. I followed in tow, holding the lantern as high as I could so she didn't trip over the few new things lining the walls. Hey, Dars, what's... how was your day? I asked. She waved a hand over her head, went straight to the fridge, and started eating slices of our new fancy cheese straight out of the package. This is fucking delicious, she said, falling forward over the prep table. I'm so glad you went to the grocery store. I noticed she was wearing the comfier clothing I'd thrown into her bag that morning. I considered asking where she'd put her suit, but figured it was balled up somewhere in the bag. I did, I said actually happy with myself. How, uh, was your day? Long, she said. Stressful as hell, I... I don't know how everybody in this town is fucking dead. She gave me a serious look. I spent three hours today organizing records and giving people shots like cattle at a fucking slaughterhouse, one after the other. She started looking around the floor for something. Then she shifted her attention to me. Didn't they drop off our cups and stuff? There, I said, pointing to one of the cupboards. She raised an eyebrow and got a cup from the cabinet I pointed to. She looked it over for a second. Is this one of ours? Darcy asked. I nodded, but she didn't look like she quite believed me. She shrugged and went to the fridge. 
filling the cup with milk and downing it in a straight shot. Fuck, that's really good. She looked into the bottom of the cup and then had another. Did you clean? Well, sort of, I said. She squeezed my shoulder and then kissed my cheek, finishing the milk and setting the cup in the sink. Then she left it there and I frowned, but she didn't notice. Her mouth cracked wide in a yawn and she stretched her arms over her head. Guess what I found in the house today, I said. Did you know they have like 70 kids or so living in that big-ass house at the end of the block? Darcy asked, either not hearing or ignoring me. I bit my lip. I didn't, I said, thinking of Sean and little Albert and then more about the increasingly odd day I'd had. I'd wanted to dump it all on her, I realized, but she was exhausted. I could see it in her eyes. Every single one of them, save like four, needed shots today, she continued. She was bracing herself on the big prep table like either it or she was about to fall over. I had to drive to fucking Beckley with Tiffany to get more sharps and vaccines and a bunch of other basic shit they didn't know they needed at that clinic. She sighed. It's just a fucking house, by the way, and there's like no sanitation measures in place. Like, it's good for a house, but all the operational stuff we need for a basic clinic is not there. Who's Tiffany? I asked. Darcy waved a hand. This clueless 20-something RN they hired ahead of me to at least do paperwork stuff for all the kids, Darcy said. She's sweet, cares, you'd like her. With that, Darcy flopped completely back over the prep table. I spent like four goddamn hours with her in the car alone today and I don't know. Three times that in that little damn clinic, both of us falling over each other trying to get all these damn boxes organized. She rubbed her forehead. What time is it? I asked. Darcy finally looked at me. How do you not... She started to say. Then she blinked. Shit. You still don't have a phone, do you? She clenched her eyes shut and laid back down. Or a a fucking computer, huh? God damn it, is there even a working clock in this place? It wouldn't really matter. The power went out in half the house today, I said, pulling the card Dawes had given me from my pocket. I got this. Fuck! Darcy yelled. I don't have time to fix all this. She slapped her hand on the prep table, keeping the fingers of the other tied over her eyes. I bit my lip. You don't, I started. I'm doing too goddamn much already, Ash, she continued. I could tell she was getting ready to go on, but something came over me. I kicked her. Not hard. Just a little tap on her ankle. She started and blinked, moving her fingers to look at me. I don't need you to do everything for me, I said, low and harsh. I held up the business card. I already found somebody who could fix that stuff, and I don't need a computer. I I honestly don't even fucking want one, Darcy. I've got a million books, and it's wonderful to not have the entire Earth's problems leaking into my pocket like fucking radiation. Ash, she said, trying to edge back into the conversation. No, Darcy, I don't like being treated like a fucking kid, I said. Was I yelling? It didn't feel like it, but her face said otherwise. I'm almost 50. God damn it, I'm just sick. I'm not a fucking toddler. I'm just fucking sick. Ash, God, I'm sorry, she said. I had the whole damn house set up by myself today, I continued, setting the lantern down and crossing my arms. The shadows on our faces weren't soft. Even though I see shit... Even though I'm crazy or incapable or whatever you think about me, I got it all fucking done. I had a bunch of guys moving stuff here and there, and I paid them to clean and everything. Look at this place. It's fucking immaculate. I turned and kicked the base of the prep table, thinking it'd make the significant noise Darcy's slap had made. 
but only succeeded in hurting my foot. The table remained silent. Trying to pretend my foot didn't hurt only made me angrier. I don't think you're crazy, Darcy said softly. I just think you... You need a lot of help, babe. She'd sat up, but the atmosphere was too tense for her to jump down off the table. And I... I... I don't know what to say. That last sentence was a long sigh. I looked at her a while longer and then, feeling ashamed of myself for getting angry, I turned away. I huffed and rubbed the bridge of my nose. I'd wanted to tell her about the typewriter, and Ellison's, and the visions, and the movers, and Sean setting up the lantern, and Albert slapping away that terrifying thing like it was so much dust in the wind. I wanted to share with her, but not if it was some chore she had to take care of before bed. So, I left it there. Just, just... Just say goodnight, okay? I asked, not turning to look at her. I heard her jump down off the table and then wrap her arms around me. She kissed the back of my neck and rested her head on the space between my shoulder blades. I reached back and twined my fingers in her hair, enjoying the warmth, before gently pushing her arms off me and taking the lantern off the table. Good night. She said, Good night, I replied. I slept fitfully, dreaming of the typewriter and the things I might write with it. They were vague images, dreams of cityscapes and ideas and feelings all as dark and formless as the thunderheads preceding a tornado. They left streaks of filth across my dreams like dirty fingers on glass, almost as though they weren't supposed to be there. Something else owned that space but had been pushed aside. I woke in the middle of the night and wandered downstairs, telling myself I wanted a glass of water or a midnight snack. Instead, I stood and stared at the mosaic in the central hall. The tiles shifted and rolled over each other in the dark, though they held the same shape, that joining of five. The mark of five bound as one, a voice in my head said. I stood still and breathless as the great central hearth burst into flame. The lip-like mantle and base were just that now, a mouth stretching wide and belching flame and black, oily smoke into the room. I could hear screaming then, and a figure clawed its way out of the blaze. Low orange flames clung to its skin, which spat and guttered that same dark smoke even as it crawled toward me. Its eyes were white and wide and human, if terribly bloodshot. They glowed and split and bubbled and dripped over its cracked and blackened cheeks. The thing made it as far as the tiles and then stopped moving, though the smoke continued toward me. I could feel it stretching out, reaching for my nose and mouth, trying to push itself down inside me. An arm clad in red cloth crept up around my chest from behind, and I felt the breath slip out of my lungs. I was sliding back, back. I woke with a start, coughing and desperately trying to breathe. I was in my bedroom, the new bedroom in the new house. I touched the covers where Darcy should be, but she wasn't there. Just the last lingering traces of warmth from where she'd slept. I pulled the covers up close under my chin, trying to hold in the warm. But I soon felt cold, so I got out of bed and showered hunting for some sign of where my wife had gone off to. All I found was a note written on the back of a prescription pad on the dresser, saying she'd had to go to work early and she'd be back late, 
I dropped it where I found it, dressed, and thumbed the card for the repairman we'd need to come in and fix the place up. Then I walked out onto the second floor landing, stretching and taking in my house. It really was starting to feel like my house, too. I looked down at the odd tiles in the center of the main hall, and from that vantage point, I could finally make sense of the bizarre stain on that mosaic. From up here, it was quite clearly the outline of a person. A person who'd collapsed, burning, their hand reaching toward the front door. Coming up on Scars in Time. Furious with Darcy after their argument the night before, Ash takes on more responsibilities to prove she's capable of handling things herself. She goes into town in search of a phone and parts to get her new typewriter working. She manages to reconnect with an old friend and meets with a repairman who takes her on a more detailed tour of her home. What Ash learns is that her home has more secrets and rooms than she ever expected. Though figuring out those riddles will have to wait because she's got a new typewriter she's just dying to try out. I hope you'll join us next episode for Scars in Time, Chapter 9. The Repairs. And until then, as always... Stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Original audio filmed on location in Sutton, West Virginia, and Louisville, Kentucky. Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content herein copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. 
Learn more at westsideferrytales.com slash westbygod.